Good day, welcome to Creation Talk. My name is Joe and this is Dr. Robert Carter. And today we are going to discuss epigenetics and why that is a problem for Darwinism. So Rob, epigenetics big topic, right? So Huge topic. What is that? It's the idea that genes are not static. Genes are turned on and they're turned off. It's not genetics, which is just, you know, sequencing DNA and looking at DNAs passed from one generation to the next. It's the Greek word epi means above or upon. Mm -hmm. It's a level of interaction, a level of control above the level of the DNA itself. It's how the DNA is used, not just the gene sequence. So traditional neo-Darwinism focuses a lot on DNA. Yes. And epigenetics is a new field that has come about that really scrambles or what, what's the word? Problematic for evolution. The reason it's a problem is that it makes a soft target for natural selection. Soft target? What do you mean by that? It, natural selection needs a very clear signal. It needs survive or don't survive. It needs have lots of children or don't have lots of children. It needs something very clear so that the genes of the species can be affected over time and potentially change it over time in the Darwinian um, understanding of things. But if let's say... Um, you know, there's some rabbits in a field <laughs> and um, in the springtime, they're eating a particular plant that changes their coat color, makes them brown. And all of a sudden they blend in very well. But later on, um, that plant that they're eating, there's not a lot of it. And so some of the rabbits are starting to turn lighter colored because they don't have that plant. And all of a sudden the hawks can see them, they pick them off. So epigenetics is really the way that a creature adapts to the environment? Uh, adapt, yeah, but it's it's not adaption in a Darwinian sense over changing the genetics over long periods of time. It's in the physiological sense as in a short-term uh, adaptation. Um, in this case, I, I just made up this example of coat color and rabbits, which I don't know coat color and rabbits eating eating plants. I do know that happens to some rats, though. But I'm imagining this this population of rabbits, and some of them are lighter and some of them are darker just because of what they're eating. And so a hawk can come down, I'll see the light-colored rabbit, pick it off and eat it. Well, it should be natural selection. But it's not affecting the genetics of the population because all the rabbits have the same genetics. It's killing off the light-colored rabbits, but they're not light because of their genes. They're just light because they didn't have access to that plant that the other rabbit had. Okay, so correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand it here, epigenetics is saying it's environmental changes to a creature. That's a good way to say it. And and what happens here is that you're saying that epigenetics changes tend to be more drastic than the changes we see from natural selection. Yeah, that, that's the cool from thing. From DNA changes rather. It's as if God engineered into living things a system to produce change. Mm -hmm. Short-term physiologic adaptation. So bigger, taller, uh, faster, uh, eye color, skin color, um, all sorts of different changes that look like they're Darwinian changes and they look like something natural selection would be focusing upon. In fact, the effect of epigenetics is designed to produce what's called a phenotypic change. Yes. The phenotype is the way an organism looks or behaves. So God engineered into organisms phenotypic changes and they're more profound than most changes of single letters in the genome. So mutations have smaller effect than the epigenetic changes. So natural selection can't see the genes. They're invisible. They're, they're, um, it's like there's too much noise in the system. And it takes a really special gene. It has a profound effect, like maybe um, 
the, the sickle cell gene in Central Africa. Mm-hmm. If you're carrying that, you're much more likely to survive childhood malaria. Yes. And that's a real life and death situation there. And so sickle cell is very common amongst Central African peoples. Mm-hmm. But that's an anomaly. That is not the way most things work in real biology. Okay, it's interesting. So how does epigenetics work? You mentioned that the DNA doesn't change, yet there are changes with the individual creature. Yeah, the, the DNA has to be modified over time. So if you have a gene, and we, we're all taught, here's a gene, the gene produces this. So yes. we have brown eyes. We're carrying the brown-eyed allele, obviously. You have darker hair than me. We have different hair color genes. Except that's not quite the way it works. Most genes are turned on and turned off over time inside the cell. They're not always on. Okay. Most genes are throttled up or throttled down. They're regulated as far as how much of a protein they're producing. Mm-hmm. And it's not a, a simple, this gene equals that trait. Most genes have a variable expression level. And it makes genetics really complicated. It makes science really complicated, but it makes Darwinism have a really hard time explaining how natural selection makes things change over time. So the epigenetic code or epigenetics rather is like, can I say it's like a series of switch, like a master switch that controls the information that's already there. Yes, but it's not just on-off switches. It's more like a soundboard in a studio where you have all these sliders. Yes. And there's a couple of switches on and off and then there's sliders of, of, of degree. Hmm. So it depends on which gene you're talking about. And there's all sorts of examples. I mean, crazy examples of genes we thought were very simple. It turns out to be their, their, their effect is contingent upon the environment. Okay, Rob. So you mentioned epigenetics, but there's a big word, methylation. So, methylation, yeah. Okay, what's that? And why is it important to epigenetics? Right, you know what natural gas is? Yes. Right, we, many people have it in their stoves, in their kitchen, right? Methane? Methane, yeah. yeah it's methane. a single carbon with four hydrogen atoms on it. Mm-hmm. Well, take off one of those hydrogen atoms, you now have a methyl group. It's just a carbon with three hydrogens, and that extra bond can be bond to another atom. Mm-hmm. So if you have like cytosine, that's one of the four letters in DNA, yes. A, C, G, and T. Well, the C is very often methylated. The cell will stick a methyl group on the cytosine, and that prevents polymerases from sliding down the DNA. There's a, there's a, a carbon sticking up. It blocks the, methyl, the, the polymerase. So that gene is effectively silenced. In other words, it's musk. It's it's mask, silenced. yeah. Okay, yes. Yeah. Um, so we have this methylation of DNA, which is really common. Most genes are methylated in some way. Mm-hmm. And it's just that piece of DNA is just turned off. So this thing that tags on is essentially what causes it to switch on or switch off. Yes. Okay. But it's not like every single gene is turned off. And it's not like in some tissue, like a liver, every single liver cell has all the exact same methylation patterns. So what decides where you should turn <laughs> it on and turn it off? <laughs> that's that's the, the crazy part. Most of those decisions are made through RNA that's not produced from a protein coding gene. Okay, so the old argument is that in our DNA, we have protein coding genes. Yeah, it's only like 2%, 2% of our genome and 98% is just junk DNA, they've said since the 1970s. That's nonsense. Yes. Most of the work in the cell, most of the decisions, most of the control is in the non-protein coding region. So that 98% turns out to be where most of the stuff is happening. Hmm. It's interesting because most evolutions, even today in some literature, they will still insist on junk DNA. Yeah. And junk DNA, sorry, that's so 20th century. It's time to let go of that, guys. 
um, step up the game. There's more complicated things in the works. But I think they need that for for evolution to work, in the traditional sense, at least. If most of the genome is functional, evolution is going to die. They they can't explain how changes happen. They can't have natural selection removing most of the mutations. They need most of the genome to be useless. Therefore, mutations can happen there, and it's no problem. Okay, so the idea here is that you have a, a DNA that is only two percent protein, and so the ninety eight percent can change that supposedly without any drastic yeah, effects. New, it's called neutral evolutionary theory. Uh, Walter Remind did a great analysis of this mm. ten or fifteen years ago in his paper on cost theory, which is in our journal of creation. We'll have a link in the show notes. Uh, excellent paper. Just he just explained. Here's a population. Here's how many children they have. Here's how many children you can remove to get rid of mutations. And evolution grinds to a halt. And so in the work that Charles, uh, that um, Charles, um, that John Sanford and I did with um, with H1N1 influenza virus, yes, we showed that mutations accumulate in a line over time, even despite natural selection, because the yes. flu is at war with our immune system. There's a huge selective advantage for flus that can propagate, and yet the mutations build up anyway. And that's why they go extinct. And that's why we think the uh, human H1N1 version went extinct in 2009. So what what's histone and what has that got to do with the methylation and and the things that we just mentioned earlier on? Histones are cool. What are histones? They're, they're proteins. They're clusters of proteins that the DNA wraps around. Mm-hmm. And they have a long tail. And so if you look under a microscope, you can see what are called beads on a string. Mm-hmm. Under a high powerful microscope, you see a piece of DNA wrapped around histone cluster and another and then a stretch and wrapped around another histone cluster. It looks like beads on a string. So it's like a string that wraps around to bring it together? Um, on beads? On... Well, when you, when you take these beads on a string, you can wrap them around each other and you can coil them up and then you can make coils of coils and coils of coils of coils and eventually you can see it under a regular light microscope. Mm-hmm. If you stay in the DNA, you can see the chromosomes. But it's actually called chromatin. Yes. That's, that's a combination of DNA plus protein. I just learned um, reading John Maddox's book, RNA, the Epicenter of Genomic Information, that the chromatin is absolutely covered with RNAs. Oh, that's interesting. That are inherited from one generation to the next. So epigenetics is temporary, but it can be inherited as well. Yeah, that's the crazy thing. Um, it's So going back to an old, 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 old idea. Yes. Lamarckian inheritance. What's that? What's Lamarckian? Well, Jean-Baptiste Lamarck um, taught in the early 1800s that organisms change because they inherit things from their parents. Mm-hmm. So a weightlifter would give birth to a stronger baby. Yes. Uh, Darwin was a Lamarckian. Yes. To the day of his death, he believed that the things we do to our bodies are passed to our children. So sailors are naturally farsighted, he said, because they're looking out over the horizon all the time. And since eyesight is one of the most heritable characteristics, nearsightedness, farsightedness, whatever, um, obviously sailors would tend to have farsighted children, but jewelers would tend to have nearsighted children. Interesting. Yeah. Now it's and that's not, this Darwinian theory. That That's Darwin's absolute theory called the uh, pangenesis. And then later on, we got the neo-Darwinian theory that came on. Near Neo-Darwinian theory threw all that out, said, no, that's not true. We had this thing called the Weissman barrier. August Weissman, uh, another paper I wrote called The Barrier Has Been Breached. Not true, but what he taught was that you have germ cells in the body and you have body cells. Germ cells are reproductive the cells. Germ cells are reproductive cells. And there's this barrier between the body cells and the germ cells. So it doesn't matter how much you exercise or whatever you do, the, the germ cells are distinct and separate. 
and they're inherited to the next generation. So in one sense, the germ cells build a body mm-hmm. so the germ cells can be passed to the next generation. Yes. So the idea here is only the DNA itself will be passed on. And it's not just only the DNA, but it's only the DNA in that specific set of cells only. So the I egg see. or the sperm cells only. Uh, that's not true anymore. Why is that? Well, we've learned since that um, sperm cells actively absorb RNA in the epididymis. Hmm. They actively absorb RNA from the body. And those RNAs affect the epigenetics. They affect which genes are turned on and which genes are turned off. They affect what's called chromatin remodeling or how the chromosomes are shaped because the shape of the chromosome in the cell dictates which genes are exposed and which genes are buried. And all this happened without changing the DNA code. And it all happens without changing the DNA code. I just learned that in um, in zebrafish, mm-hmm. um, the thing I used in my doctoral work yes. to make uh, green fluorescent, red fluorescent fish, fluorescent fish, the zebrafish females, all the methylation patterns are stripped off the eggs. But why is that? Well, because the assumption is that there's no inheritance of environmental cues from one generation to the next. So before the cell uh, the cell divides, you have to take off all the chromos- all, all the methyls from the chromosomes or the polymerases can't make new copies of the DNA. Mm-hmm. But what they found out was that um, it's not true in the male. The patterning on the sperm will be the patterning on the child. So whatever environmental effects the father had is going to turn on and turn off certain genes in the baby fish. Wow. So it's in, it can be inherited. And okay. it can be inherited. And that is not supposed to be. Now we have in, the environment is inherited. Oh man, neo-Darwinism dies here. That is the antithesis of neo-Darwinism. Now people have brought these ideas into newer uh, Darwinian theories, but it's not Darwin's concept. And it's not the concept that they had in the 1930s called the neo-Darwinian synthesis that we were raised with. Something new has to come about, and epigenetics is, is really causing massive problems. That's very interesting. So, Rob, when you say epigenetics, you bring to mind something that you used to talk about a lot, and you still talk about that, the four-dimensional DNA. Oh, yeah. So what's that? The, four, the multidimensional genome is uh, a talk that I gave at one of our super conferences. In fact, it was the first time I ever gave the talk, and it was the best time I ever gave that talk, and I was very glad that they had a camera there um, we've, that talk is available on creation.com, either on digital download or a DVD, but it's basically the thought that the genome has more than one dimension. We learned in math class that, uh, a, a one dimensional object is a line. Yes. All a, a line just has length. There's no width. There's no whatever. It's just, there's just length. Well, it's like DNA. DNA is a line. The line of letters. Yes. A line of letters, but your DNA in your cells is literally six feet long. Two yes. meters long in every cell, but if you stretch it out, it's so skinny you couldn't even see it. So it has no width, just a length. So and it's not true. There is, you know, a couple <laughs> nanometers of width there, but yes. my, my point is that on that scale, it's just one dimension. Yes. Well, the two-dimensional part of the genome is if you drew out, like if you took this piece of paper and you printed out the genome on it. Yes. Yeah, A C G C C C A C A C C G T T T C C G G D and all the letters of the genome. You say, okay, well, here's a gene. This gene turns that gene off. Yes. So you have to draw an arrow from here to there. Yes. But this piece over here intersects intersects with this one here, and this one affects this one, and this one amplifies this one, but this one puts a throttle down on this one. And in order to draw out all those interactions, you'd have to draw lines all over your page. The page is two dimensions. 
That's the second dimension of the genome. The third dimension is how the chromosomes fold up. Why? Well, because of the three-dimensional shape. What do you mean by that? The, the spacing and the sequence of letters on the chromosomes, when they fold up, that'll affect which genes are available. So when God wrote out the, the code for the genome, he knew how it was going to fold into three dimensions. Yes. And so some genes aren't, can't be accessed by the cell. They're, they're, they're not available because they're buried. But the cell can use that if it changes the shape of the chromosomes. So DNA in this case is storing information in the three-dimensional shape. In a three-dimensional shape, yes. In fact, I remember when the Human Genome Project was completed, Yes. One of the first papers I read afterwards, um, these scientists were looking at genes that are used together in biochemical pathways. Now, the classic one we learned about E. coli is called the lac operon. Yes, with the genes together. Yes, yeah, like. three genes together. And when the, the cell wants to digest lactose, it turns all three of the genes on. So three different proteins are made and now they can, the cell can eat lactose. Mm -hmm. And so they said, well, you know, if evolution is true, then there should be some simple correlation between the genes that are used together and where they're located in the genome. And they found out, no, they're, they're random. They're found all over the place, different chromosomes. There's no, in, in, in the one-dimensional or even the two-dimensional nature of the genome, there's no correlation between genes that are used together. Mm -hmm. Well, that worked until someone folded the chromosomes into three-dimensional shapes. And they realized they're not random. It's not millions of years of evolutionary experiments. It's not a bunch of junk. They're actually positioned in such a way that the genes that are used together are next to each other in three-dimensional space. Wow. So that's the 3D nature of the genome. It's super complicated and super interesting. But it's the fourth dimension that things really go crazy. And this is where epigenetics come in. A huge part of this is epigenetics. Um, the chromosomes change shape over time. So what's the fourth dimension? The fourth dimension is time. Okay, so how? Well, if you want, um, let's say that I eat a, a bad peanut and I'm being, um, um, it's toxic and I'm going to die because of aflatoxins or whatever's on the peanut. Well, my eyeballs don't say, hey, I can detoxify that. No, my liver does. So somehow my liver only, my earlobes ignore this, but my liver says, hey, I'm going to make a new protein. Oh, but it's buried. Ah, I'm going to unfold my chromosomes and change the way they're shaped in time expose that protein, make a bunch of a protein coding gene, make a bunch of copies of that gene, have them turn into protein, and now I can get rid of the toxin. So you have the same DNA, but different things are happening in time. Yes. So it's not static. It's not static. I mean, you don't need the same genes today that you needed in puberty, and you didn't need the same genes then as you needed when you're developing inside your mother. Mm -hmm. the, single, the single cell that we all started with they don't need genes for the, the adult form. They need genes for making the adult form. There are genes that are turned on only once and then they're just packed away again. Wow. And there are other genes that are always on or sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. They're regulated, but that the, the three-dimensional shape affects all of that. And you have all these different cell types. And then you have this crazy thing. Uh, I wrote this article called the splicing and uh, splicing and dicing the human genome. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is insane. What's that? Well, when we were looking at bacteria, we started science with bacteria. Genetics started with Simple, the yes. simplest organisms we could find. We learned that bacteria have a start and a stop to each gene. Mm -hmm. It's very simple. ATG starts it and UGA or UAA or one of the stop codons starts it. And you can, you can literally, by eye, 
read three letters at a time, and know exactly which proteins will be made into the protein, you know, which amino acids will go into the protein. That's for bacteria. And that's for bacteria. It's a nice, simple one gene, one enzyme, or one protein. Yeah, that's not true for humans or any other higher organism. Even Why in the 1960s, we knew this. We said, you know, we know the size of the protein. And no, in bacteria, it's three letters of DNA to one amino acid. Okay, but in, uh, in all the other organisms, the more complex organisms, they're like a hundred times more so letters you, than you need. So you have a few genes that produces a lot more proteins. Yes, and the way this works is that the genes are broken up into little cassettes. Mm -hmm. They're called exons. And in between the cassettes are things called introns. Now, sometimes an intron is an exon for another gene. Sometimes an intron is an entire gene all by itself. Interesting. But as far as this one gene is concerned, these exons, the DNA has to be made into RNA. The introns have to be cut out and exons are joined together. And that's what makes the protein. Except the exons can be used in different proteins at different times. So our body manufactures about 300,000 unique proteins. No one's actually totally sure. We only have about 20, 21,000, maybe 22,000 protein coding genes. Yes. And the way we manu manufacture so many different proteins is the cell says, oh, I have a protein coding gene with these pieces and I'm going to make a protein, but I'm not going to use that exon. But I'll, or I'm going to use an exon from this other protein coding gene. I'm going to bring it over here and stick it in here. Because under these conditions, at this time of development, under this cell type, with whatever else is happening, this is the protein that cell wants to make. And it's super, super, super complicated. And it's all controlled at a level of epigenetics. So you're saying that a single string of letters can cut and rearrange that to get multiple different codes of yeah. information. Yeah, it would be like uh, these instructions that we have here about what we're supposed to talk about. It's also a chocolate chip cookie recipe. But only if you take this piece, this piece, this piece, and rearrange it, maybe bring a piece from over there. Now, okay, now we can make chocolate chip cookies. Wow. And so that's in our DNA. Yeah. And the and thing that controls this is the epigenetic code. It's the epigenetic code. The RNA and things like that. The, the, mostly the non-protein coding regions of the genome doing fantastic, wonderful, and amazing things. Things that should never have arisen through a simplistic process of mutation and selection. It's a top-down thing that God programmed this, this genome, but he did it in a way that defies naturalistic explanations and did it in a way that we're having a really hard time understanding because he's a lot smarter than we are. If I was going to manufacture something from scratch, I'm going to make it pretty simple. Yes. That's not the way God did it. So epigenetics not only contradicts Darwin and neo-Darwinism, but it amplifies the wisdom and intelligence of the Creator. Wow. Thank you, Rob. That's wonderful. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Don't forget to follow us and comment. Let us know what you think below. And if you have any questions, let us know as well. And the links to all the articles we discussed will be in the show notes. Uh, feel free to read. Mm -hmm.